Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 30th, 2022. I am John Bodhor. It's the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is out today, so it's just us three guys. Uh, Abe Greenwald, uh, our executive editor. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Noah Rothman, our associate editor and author of Rise of the New Puritans. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And me. So uh, we are we are stagged today, and we are um, short short staffed, and we're tired. And so both both Noah and I have um have have dogs that have uh, misbehaved in the middle of the night, causing us to have to do cleanup, and uh, that of course uh, interferes with one's uh, capacity to think clearly uh, in the morning. Um, so I I thought about um, bringing up to you guys a, a pretty remarkable, horrible story about Chicago. Uh, of course, you know, uh, cited by conservatives constantly as you know, sort of this epicenter of crime um, uh, under under Mayor Lori Lightfoot and under the previous Mayor Rahm Emanuel um, as a kind of uh, urban playground for criminals. Uh, and a uh, remarkably uh, unresponsive political system dealing with uh, the the torment that the people are are going through, um, in part because of a sustained attack on the police department itself for being uh, racially hostile. Uh, that seems to have defanged the department even before talk of defunding the police and all of that. So there's this horror story from the other day. Uh, West Loop kidnapped suspect told woman after dumping urine on her at Loop CTA station, that's the mass transit system in Chicago, you deserve it. So the story is that there is a, there is a registered sex offender named Quavon Ewing who dumped a cup of his own urine onto a woman at a downtown uh, L station and told her she deserved it. CTA security cameras captured that incident and other images of viewing that led Chicago police to arrest him on Tuesday at the Jackson Red Line station. So it's really disgusting, right? It's horrifying. And we, we, we keep hearing about this as a new kind of weird, new, crazy tactic, people throwing feces on people. There was a guy in L.A. who a shopkeeper with feces thrown on him. Now we have urine being dumped on someone. But here's the detail that I wanted to share with you. Less than 24 hours after Judge Mariam Ahmad released Ewing on his own recognizance for failing to register as a sex offender, <clears throat> that's when this happened. He stood next to a minivan in the 100 block of West Roosevelt, peeing into a cup. Prosecutors say he grabbed a 35-year-old woman by the shoulders as she passed the van on her way to the gym. He allegedly put her in a bear hug moaned called her baby until she bit him on the neck and hit him with her phone at that point he jumped into the van and drove away about 15 minutes later at 8 45 a.m a 45 year old woman saw ewing standing next to the van in the 200 block of south sangamon as she returned from starbucks prosecutors say he jumped in front of her grabbed her by the shoulders and tried to force her in the van the woman screamed and fought so hard to avoid being put into the van that she pulled part of the vehicle off Prosecutors say that when a good Samaritan tried to help, Ewing threatened them with something he took from the van and then drove away. Then just after 9 a.m., CTA cameras allegedly recorded Ewing as he urinated into a cup at a CTA station. Minutes later, he passed a 25-year-old woman who was entering the station and he poured the bottle of urine on her head, face, mouth, and purse. You deserve it. He allegedly told the woman. His defense attorney said he has mental health issues. Judge Ahmad, the same judge who released him on his own recognizance for failing to register as a sex offender on Saturday, was back on the bench Wednesday. And I'm happy to report to you, she wasn't nearly as generous in her ruling. She ordered Ewing to pay a $50,000 bail deposit to get out of the jail on the kidnapping battery charges, plus another $10,000 deposit for failing to register. In addition to giving Ewing a recognizance bond on the felony registration charge Saturday, Ahmad also quashed another judge's arrest warrant that would have held Ewing in lieu of a $1,500 in lieu of $1,500 on an outstanding battery case. So we have a guy, a judge quashes the ruling of another judge that would have had him in jail, uh, releases him on his own recognizance for failing to register as a sex offender. And in 30 minutes, tries to kidnap two different women 
and then pours his bodily excretion on a third. And this, I think, in Chris is some kind of weird chrysalis story that combines everything that is going on in the debate over crime and criminal justice in the United States right now that is, I believe people think, responsible in part in various states for the uh, halting of the democratic surge that started this summer uh, as Republicans have gone on the air with advertising, really focusing on crime and then secondarily on on immigration. Um, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the um, advertising on crime which is frustrating Democrats and Democratic operatives to no end, as evidenced by the utterly discredited institution, PolitiFact, uh, which provides us yesterday with this piece. Scaring voters to the polls, question mark? How political ads are using crime statistics to try to sway voters, as though this is some nefarious tactic, not as old as the nation itself. But the PolitiFact piece doesn't PolitiFact check anything. There's no accusation in this piece citing ads from candidates in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Wisconsin that are wrong. The statistics are, in fact, correct. They just need to be contextualized to the point that you don't actually understand what you just saw, In, um, in starting with uh, New York, where it's going after Lee Zeldin. Um, Lee Zeldin is using these statistics saying, you know, the crime in the city in particular is up. Lee Zeldin is the Republican candidate for governor. Kathy Hochul. Quote, governors play a role in fighting crime by helping determine funding for local governments, including police departments. But many factors, including the stress of the pandemic and the pressures of inflation in the past year, contribute to fluctuations in crime, which is typically viewed as more of a local issue. Uh, The fluctuations of the of inflation and the stresses of the pandemic did contribute to crime because they incentivized political officials to make the problem worse by emptying out prisons. I'm gonna go further into uh, into Chicago. Uh, one ad, a uh, uh, Herschel Walker ad, uh, claimed, quote, Atlanta is more likely to be a victim of murder, aggravated assault, burglary, and theft and auto theft than in Chicago. And the PolitiFact piece goes on to say, yeah, but Chicago had higher rates of rape and robbery, which doesn't counteract any of these claims at all. It's just context to help you understand what you're seeing. Uh, and lastly, a Johnson ad where he says, uh, where PolitiFact says, it's this Rod ad Johnson misleads. Ron Johnson is facing Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. This ad misleads about Barnes, PolitiFact writes. He has supported reducing the state's prison population by half over several years, but not by releasing half of the inmates. But yes, actually releasing half of the inmates, just not all at once through attrition as though this changes the meaning of anything. They don't have one thing to say about this issue. All they can do is try to provide context to suggest that the utterly accurate claims that are being made by these Republicans are somehow dirty pool. They just don't like that this is an issue and they have no response to it. Well, this is this this reminds me, you know, uh, before Chesa Boudin was ousted, um, the ways they would try to split up the crime statistics in San Francisco were dazzling, you know, to 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 try to talk people out of uh, knowing what th- what they actually knew and, and lived through every day. I mean, this is you know, what, what, what we've been saying is that you cannot crime like inflation uh, is one of those things you cannot talk people out of believing. Okay, so look, let let's pull back. First of all, uh, the PolitiFact thing with Walker is astonishing because Atlanta is a city with a population, I think, an eighth uh, of Chicago, something like that. And actually, I mean, I'm looking at the numbers right here. Is Chicago's crime rate worse? Yes, Chicago's crime rate, uh, Atlanta's crime rate, is worse in absolute numbers. It's not, but. Uh, Atlanta has a population of, excuse me, 5 million. Uh, Chicago's is nearly 2.7 million. So I guess it's a fifth. Uh, aggravated assaults in in uh, in Atlanta, 386 per 100,000. In Chicago, 114 per 100,000. Okay. Uh, murders, Chicago, 13 per 100,000. Atlanta, 
17 per 100,000. So is crime worse in Atlanta? Yes. Can you contextualize it as being worse than not being worse? No. There is no context except absolute numbers, which is not an appropriate context. But if we were to pull back to 30,000 feet and talk about this theoretically, the big change that happened in in in, uh, in criminal justice and the pursuit of, of of criminals and the use of law enforcement, as 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 people know, came uh, began theoretically in the 1980s with George Kelling and James Q. Wilson and the theory of broken windows. And, and the theory of broken windows, broken down very quickly, is uh an analogy right if you have a, an empty apartment building and someone throws a rock at a window and breaks it and you don't go and immediately uh, take and put a new pane of glass in the broken window in two or three days every window in this abandoned building will be broken because the image of um the fact that something will have happened that is disruptive and va vandalizing uh, is not immediately interceded uh that is a message to people that they can go to town. And then that was applied, uh, broken windows theory, to forms of uh, uh, criminal pursuit, mostly the famous uh, idea that what you do when somebody commits a minor misdemeanor, right, jumps a turnstile, that's the famous New York example, doesn't pay a, doesn't, you know, that's a, at the time was like 40 cents or 50 cents or something like that, but you, you arrest them chances are overwhelming that they are out on bail or that they have committed a crime beforehand or, or that they are on parole and therefore they are showing signs of leading a criminal existence in which they are not obeying the rules and the laws that everybody else obeys and that it's time to bring them back into the criminal justice system arrest them put them through the process and take them off the streets and this proved astoundingly successful in practice so you go 30 years later, crime is basically much of violent crime and economic crime is basically obliterated in major cities in the United States. And a generation and a half has passed and you have this new force. It's an old force, but, you know, revivified saying there are too many people in jail. Too many people have gone to jail for two for things that are, are not important enough. Two million people in jail. We're, we're, we're an incarceration nation. People need to be let out and we need to change the way we're doing this populations that benefited from a from a decrease in crime were convinced that things would be better if they if things were softened and so things were softened and almost instantaneously we had this change where crime began to rise particularly in new york but elsewhere so what we have now in the case of this judge ahmad in chicago is it's not that they're not doing broken windows theory it's that they are pursuing a policy, the actual ap absolute opposite of broken windows theory. Someone is brought into a courtroom having failed to register as a sex offender with an outstanding warrant against him for doing something else. And not only does Judge Ahmad quash the case that would have given her the right to hold him in jail, she releases him on his own recognizance for the case that he is before her, which is failing to register as a sex offender. 30 years ago, that would have been the perfect example of, he would have been the perfect example of somebody that you would have kept in custody or revoked parole for or whatever because he had done this, he had, he had done something less severe but had a history of doing things that were vastly more severe and therefore his behavior suggested that he would go back on the streets and be a menace to others. And that is exactly what happened. Three women in 30 minutes, including this foul and disgusting crime that occurred when he was frustrated in his design to kidnap someone, throw them in his van, and do whatever it was that he would do with her. So we have now, it would be malfeasance for this not to be a political issue before the public. The public changed a lot of the policies in a lot of these states by electing people who changed policies in a lot of these states. They now need to make electoral choices about whether or not that's okay with them. 
And Atlanta, <clears throat> Georgia is a perfect example of this. You have three progressives at the top of the of the Georgia Democratic Party. You have John Ossoff, you have Raphael Warnock, and you have Stacey Abrams. Two of them are senators, Democratic senators, because of the hijinks of 2020. And one of them is running for governor. And this is a very deliberate, this is an actual thing that happened. It's a delta. It's a change. The change in crime in Atlanta is a delta that happened over the last four years. And so, of course, Herschel Walker is running on it. He should run on it. And what's more, Democrats should welcome him running on it because they need to be able to make the argument that what they've done is good despite the, the crime surge. They need to say, look, there's been this increase in crime. We admit it. But look at all these people who are employed or look at this guy who has you know, made a new life for himself or whatever. They should continue to make the case that they were making for why this was a good thing to do in the first place. And well, the fact that they're running against, running away from it means they don't have a case to make. Right. I mean, they're they're touting the records, but they're touting the records as, and highlighting the, the rare instances where they could consider themselves tough on crime. You know, Fetterman has ads pushing back against the claim that he's tough on crime. Val Demings is running well, as a weak cop. Weak on crime. Yeah. Weak right. on crime. So, I mean, they're trying yeah. to make the case on crime. But the only case to make on crime is that you're tough on crime. No one's defending their decarceral record. Right. Well, I'm saying that it is a good thing for the body politic that they are being made to confront their decarceral record, that we now have real world data and real world experience. And it is time for that to be something that they have to reckon with. Uh, Gabe, you're, you're mute. I think it's a good thing um, for an, in, a, in another sense, too, in a related sense, which is that um, when people come out and say this has to stop, I know how to stop it. I'm going to stop it. It's laying down a marker and then they can be held accountable if they don't deliver. This is it's it. It is not the kind of sort of campaign promise that no one expects um, you to deliver on. Um, it is one of the real world issues that I mean, we've been saying it about Eric Adams in New York. You know, if 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 this is your plan and you come in and you sweep into town and you don't and you don't deliver it, you will be held accountable for this. Adams is the perfect example of what we're talking about. He got elected saying I'm a cop, saying I know how to solve crime. We're nine months into his mayoralty. And crime in New York is up 40%. And he has literally no argument to make on any other grounds for his mayoralty than that he was going to solve the crime and, and public nuisance problems. And, uh, you know, he's got three and a half years to go. And he is clearly clueless, foolish, lazy, uh, in, in it simply to be a guy who can sit in a restaurant and have people come and you know, and and pay pay him obeisance and pay him court, which seems to be his favorite thing to do. And uh, and um, I, I don't know what's going to happen, uh, but he, he has failed completely. Uh, you know, after you could say like three months, five months, six months, you can't blame him. But it's like nine months, and then he comes out and he starts talking about how. New York is a brand and Kansas isn't a brand. And that's his idea of being a mayor. So the point here is not, by the way, that what we're what we're seeing is a confrontation in elections between you know, except maybe in in uh in in Wisconsin. Okay, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida, maybe, and Georgia. Okay, so I'm totally wrong what I'm saying here. Forget what I'm saying. I'm saying mostly that. Republicans are making hay about this in places where crime may not be that bad, but the message I think is perfectly fair, which is let these people stay in charge of the country and of the Senate and of all that. And you, uh, you know, it's going to come to you the way it did in the seventies and eighties, wherever you're living, wherever in the country you are, uh, it's coming to you. It's perfectly legitimate. They just don't want people. This is this is the top of, you know, to borrow a phrase from Karine Jean-Pierre. This is a top of mind issue. Uh, according to the polling, it's one of uh, maybe a handful of resonant issues for voters heading into the midterm elections. Maybe a top three issue. I haven't seen a recent polling on the issue, but <clears throat> all through the summer, it was a top top three issue. And 
these are, you know, these are all just brushback pitches, you know, to, I don't want to bring my, my Twitter necessarily to this, this podcast, but I was just talking a little bit about that PolitiFact piece that I was reading the other day. And, uh, a guy I like, Democratic pollster named Will Jordan, comes back at me and says, you know, I, I talked about the Mandela Barnes ad and was like, well, yeah, he wants to reduce the state's population by half over several years, but not by releasing half the inmates. And, sure. and there's no difference between release and in, in all in mass and attrition. And he says, of course it does. Reduce is not the same as release. And I'm like, what's the verb you would use to describe the process that an inmate goes through when they ambulate their way out of the prison population? Like we're the only way they can do this is by being lawyerly, by trying to argue out of the evidence of your own eyes and ears, as Orwell would say. Um, but because they don't really want to reduce crime, <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't want to reduce crime at the expense of the social engineering that they've convinced themselves is so necessary that the American prison population is an unsustainable blight on the American experience, and it must be reduced by any means possible. That's what they believe. And it's high time so, that somebody made them say it. Right. Well, I mean, so here we are. And, you know, I was listening to the 538 podcast yesterday and Nate Silver, who congratulations to Nate Silver, who won $140,000 in a poker tournament, which is pretty impressive. But Nate Silver and, and Galen Droop, the two guys who sort of do this uh, study of their own model, said, look, the Democratic surge or whatever it is seems to have stopped and the republicans seem to be moving into a position of potentially modest advantage it's hard to tell their model currently shows the 70 percent chance of democrats retaining the senate and the 70 percent chance of republicans uh taking the house uh but um that's a snapshot picture using a prior you know polling and we do have these numbers in various places uh, Fetterman's advantage over Oz has been reduced by half. Fetterman's now ahead by four or five points. Johnson in uh, Mandela Barnes was beating Johnson by four or five points until Johnson went up on the air with these crime ads. And Johnson is now, it appears, up two or three points or more. Uh, the Walker-Warnock race is moving in Walker's direction. The only state in which you really see uh, a Republican cratering um, is uh, is Arizona. We don't have that much polling in New Hampshire, which is also likely a place where Republicans might have had a pickup against Maggie Hassan, but have this guy who doesn't seem to know what he's doing as the Senate candidate. And uh, um, in Ohio, where Tim Tim Ryan is defying gravity uh, in these polls, the uh, Democratic congressman uh, who is running as some kind of a I don't know what you would call it, John McCain Democrat or something like that. Um, and uh, but it, this is a state that Trump won by eight uh, in 2020, and it sort of defies logic <laughs> that in the absence of a gigantic, embarrassing gaffe, that JD Vance can't can't pull this out and retain the seat for Republicans. So I I don't know. I don't. I think I think that what we're seeing here is that the Republican issues which somehow retreated uh, in the in the summer because maybe because of declining gas prices and because of the Democratic push on abortion that had Republicans being very, very much on the defensive are, are starting to bite again. And well, immigration, they only, yeah. They only retreated in terms of coverage. They were, they were, they had never gone away. That's right. In, in fact, they've gotten worse. Well, yeah. they were, they were, they were treated in some sense because, um, because uh, things weren't in, weren't going in a straight line negative way on inflation, like they zigged. I mean, they inflation was bad and it didn't get, but it wasn't getting worse for a while. And gas prices were getting better. So, uh, you know, I have a theory a, of everything that is ahead. entirely reflective of my Trump derangement syndrome. Okay, but the the swoon began, and Matt Continetti wrote about this before the Mar-a-Lago raid. And it has a lot to do with the fact that a whole lot of Trumpy candidates were winning primary elections. And this happens every every midterm cycle where the especially when there's unified control of government by one party, the other party, which had been a generic vehicle of opposition to whatever this is, suddenly becomes a lot less generic and they get a, a closer look by voters and things get a little dicier. <clears throat> and then the status quo returns. And so that's right. what we're seeing. The status quo was always Republicans were going to do very well in this midterm and voters 
were starting to give the Republican Party a much closer review during the summer when they started actually standing for things, and especially when they started looking very Trumpy. And voters probably got a little leery of that. But the fundamentals of this election were always the fundamentals of this election, and they've subsequently returned. Okay, so uh, uh, I said I'd listen to the 538 podcast. The other podcast that I love to listen to, as I've said many times, is Dan Senor's Call Me Back, uh, the uh, interview show in which he uh, uh, delves deep with um, fascinating uh, guests to talk. He'd started as post-corona to talk about what the world was going to be like post-corona. And now that we are post-corona, he's now talking about what the world is like. Um, and he has a two, he has a double header. Uh, right now, uh, this weekend, he's releasing one episode and a bonus episode. The 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 lead episode is with a rule mark correct, uh, former uh, colleague of Abe's, uh, a um Iran scholar, uh a former CIA agent, uh 20 years on on Iran. And uh, and he has um, he downloads uh, with Dan uh, everything about what's going on in the streets uh, in in Iran and points out that uh, one of the major difficulties for the regime is the woman centric nature of this revolt. Uh, the Iranians who believe that the best way to handle these things is to crack down and crack down hard and violently um, are showing some signs of hesitation in relation to this because so many of the protesters are female and of course the image of a cop you know smashing the head of a woman uh with a baton is 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 one that has very very bad ramifications uh and so that's 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 the that's the call me back podcast with rural mark correct the other is with our own mayor soloveitchik jewish commentary columnist uh, rabbi of um, Sheriff Israel in uh, in New York City, uh, maybe America's leading uh, Orthodox rabbi, um, uh, head of the Strauss Center at the Yeshiva University, and this is a podcast that focuses on the uh, the first night of Yom Kippur, which is um, Tuesday night coming up. Uh, the the uh, it's known as Kol Nidre and led by the prayer. Kol Nidre, which is the prayer in which we we ask uh, we ask God to uh, inscribe us in the Book of Life and to forgive us uh, for the uh, sins we have committed, and indeed for the sins we may commit in the future. Um, and uh, according to Sully, as he's known, uh, uh, Mary Yitzhak Soloveitchik, known as Sully, uh, Kol Nidre is the most misunderstood prayer in the Jewish liturgy. I haven't heard the podcast yet, so I don't know what case he is making but i but um it's fascinating and he has a way of uh, bringing everything together that even if you're not jewish and you don't know a lot about this will be fantastically illuminating so that's the call me back podcast go to apple google play stitch or wherever you get your fine podcasts uh subscribe listen and be enlightened uh so Noah, you were saying just before we got on the air that this may be the most dangerous day. We are we're taping this in the morning on Friday the thirtieth, and that this may be the most dangerous day of the war in Ukraine uh, between Russia and Ukraine. What what do you what do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, I'm probably not the most dangerous twenty four hours, but yeah, <laughs> a, a dangerous weekend for sure. Um, because today is the day that Vladimir Putin is, as we are speaking currently, is, is addressing the nation and announcing his intention to uh, incorporate these four oblasts in Ukraine, um, Kyrgyzstan, Luhansk, and Nyetsk, and Zaporizhia, uh, uh, into the Russian Federation. He's suing for peace. He's saying, listen, war's over. Uh, we have taken these territories. It is time now for Ukraine to return to the uh, Kiev to return to the negotiating table and hammer out a ceasefire. Uh, pretty hilarious insofar as this is negotiating from a position of profound weakness. Uh, Moscow is is losing this war. Several thousand troops, we don't know how many, appear to be now in, encircled fully in Lyman. Um, and they... We have a lot of indications that suggest these conscripts who are being, you know, swept off the streets, like like 
impressed, like British naval impressment into, into service are being taken right to the front uh, where they are being slaughtered or we've seen some, some images of uh, mass retreating. Uh, and this is, you know, this is an effort to say, well, listen, this is, this is over. Now you, now things are going to get worse for you unless you sue and you accept sur uh, surrender capitulation. And there's all this talk about unconventional weapon use. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're going to get there for some time, but I do think that we're going to get to a, a nuclear standoff, uh, something very real in, in the near future. I don't think anybody really has the, the stomach to pull the trigger on this yet, but that's not how these crises evolve. They tend to have a logic of their own and an inertia and a momentum of their own, especially when things get really hot. Um, and I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to see something very akin to tensions rivaling 1962. Uh, uh, something we haven't, much of us, most of us haven't experienced in our, in our lifetimes, people who are alive today, but um, some will remember. And I suspect that we'll see that before the end of the year, uh, because at the current rate at which um, Moscow is losing this war, they're going to be in a very dangerous position in the wintertime. And there's no evidence uh, to suggest that the West is losing their stomach for this. I said the other day that uh, the United States was providing 18 new HIMARS, these guided um, multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine, and they should arrive shortly. No, they're going to arrive over the course of the next two years, suggesting that uh, the West's commitment to this conflict is is not going to end anytime soon, and also that this war is not going to end anytime soon. At least that's what the Pentagon is telegraphing. Um, but that's not in Moscow's interests. Moscow, I don't think, can can continue to prosecute a war at this at this tempo on that long of a time horizon. Um, so we're looking at some some crisis to this is all to affect uh, some battlefields change. And I'm really nervous about how our response to the Nord Stream pipeline is being interpreted in the Kremlin, because what happened there was a really brazen assault on Western infrastructure. These these explosive devices could have been set years ago, according to a piece in the in the Times of London, um, suge suggesting that this was a, a contingency that had always been in the Kremlin's back pocket. And our response so far has been oblique accusations, no naming names, investigations that could take a month or two. Um, that's a sign of weakness. And if if this was a test of the West's resolve to do something to respond to a direct attack on Western infrastructure. Now, this is a Russian pipeline, but this is Western infrastructure, and we didn't respond. And that might be the green light. I mean, I, first of all, let me just um, play devil's advocate for a minute. You're, you're saying you said two very big things, one of which is that we're, we're showing weakness by not responding to the pipeline explosion. And we may really not know its provenance and we may not know who did it or why or how. And well, so everybody's being not being especially coy about this. No, nobody's but, naming names but right. it does you don't have to read between the lines and do a talmudic analysis of nato's statement to see who they think did this thing. no i know but it, it is a very weird as we said yesterday this is an incredibly weird thing to have done i mean this is a this is a it's not just a western pipeline this is a cash spigot for russia that it has itself destroyed if russia did it and therefore you kind of have to wrap your head around what mentality there was that thought that this was the best plan and what how to respond to it because it is i don't know unique in the annals of 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 warfare um it's one thing to like you know blow up the buildings that you're uh, you're abandoning so that the uh, invading army can't uh, you know can't take them or use them uh, it's another or for, to or blow for up Saddam to set fire to the Kuwaiti oil fields on the way out. Right. Because there weren't his oil fields and right. then he was immiserating them. Right. But I mean, so this is kind of like a unique thing and I, I'm willing to give them time. The second thing you said is that we may be heading toward uh, 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, the reason that that's a problematic analogy is that um, we discovered, it's amazing to think how primitive our intelligence was in 1962 like we discovered that the soviets had been had been moving in missiles into cuba how we didn't know that 
you know, we discovered it like months after it had happened, like how we didn't know that. Cause we, you know, we didn't have satellites then. And we had very, apparently we had very little, you know, uh, intelligence penetration of Cuba at the time. So we find this out. And the other thing that we didn't know, which is why it was such a crisis is were they nuclear armed or not, or could they, could they put nuclear weapons on the warheads quickly so that if we said, look, you got to get these warheads out in four days or we're going to take them out, uh, we didn't know if they could put nukes on them in two or three days uh, and therefore turn this into a nuclear conflagration. We knew almost nothing about the Russian military. We knew nothing about how much they had or where they were or what it was. And of course, we had had this humiliation two years earlier because we were trying to do overflights with um uh, you know, with aircraft and Francis Gary Powers got shot down. Um, and that was considered dirty pool that we were even spying on them. And so that was a moment that was a hinge moment because we then said, essentially, we need to develop and live by the doctrine of, of, um, of mutual assured destruction because we just don't understand what the Russians have and what they're capable of and what we have and what we're capable of. And we need to therefore assume that any nuclear exchange of threatens the viability of the entire planet and and use that as our war fighting posture and here you just have a desperate nation willing to use a despicable weapon in a battlefield circumstance potentially and that that's a different set of calculations it wouldn't be a battlefield um, circumstance though because what do you mean <clears throat> well they're not going to fire an icbm at us no that okay. not not at first um, but that's up the chain well, of escalation. First is what matters. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, so well, yeah, we, I'm, we, uh, a demonstrative, demonstrative or tactical on the battlefield to me makes very little difference because the response has to be kinetic in some form. Uh, at least that's what a lot of heads of state in, in NATO were saying. We had this quote, very alarming tone, tonally very alarming quote from uh, the deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence who spoke with the Guardian paper and said. The probability of Russia striking Ukraine with a tactical nuclear weapon is very high. They will likely target places along the front lines with a lot of personnel and a lot of equipment. And this is going to occur shortly after this annexation. Now, Ukraine doesn't have the intelligence to make that assessment. And they're also doing so to say, you know, we need more weapons. Um, but this kind of statement has the capacity to deter Western governments from getting more involved, especially the, you know, the squishy quizzlings in, in Europe. Um, so the incentive structure is not to say something like this, and they don't have the intelligence to establish that, but we are giving them a lot of intelligence. So maybe I, they're saying what they shouldn't be saying out loud. Look, it's possible. Anything is possible. I'm just saying that we 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 have two very different circumstances because we have a we have an ongoing war, uh, and in in and in Cuba you know, 60 years ago, something else was going on that wasn't an ongoing war, that was a, uh, was a, the placement of a potential direct threat to the constitutional, you know, to the constitutional, to the continental United States um, that we, that we could not abide. And indeed we didn't, I mean, the missiles were pulled from, from Cuba and then we made some kind of a guarantee that we wouldn't put missiles in Turkey. I mean, it's all, that's, that's not an important element here. We have here a, a vastly changing weird situation, in which we have a, we have a, a country that has proven itself far less powerful and far less able to uh, it, work its will than it thought it was. And it's got this weird ace in the hole. Uh, you know, it's got this crazy psychotic ace in the hole. I don't mean Putin. I mean the weaponry. And uh, I don't know how you game that out, but I, it's, I I don't think that we're like on the verge of a, you know, of an intercontinental. If I were, I would be more like the Natcons who say we're pushing this to World War Three. Why are we doing this? This is crazy. And I, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I think that's a much more arguable case if you were willing to say, yeah, it's very thinkable that we're going to be, you know, in a series of nuclear exchanges. Well, except maybe go ahead. Andy. I mean, look, it's it's all very scary and, and and difficult to think through. But even if if one wants to or one is inclined to lean toward the NatCon argument there and say, well, if this is if this is 
heading toward uh, a nuclear exchange, then we must sort of pull away no matter what. The, the issue there, though, then is that then you, you sort of cede the world to the worst people with the worst weapons. Exactly. Um, you know, which is and, why and people were people like my father were making the argument 10, 15 years ago that we need that we in the United States needed to hit Iran and destroy its burgeoning nuclear program because we were was right. we were we were but we were leading inexorably into a world in which a tawdry second rate country would have an, an unbelievable incentive to develop a nuclear weapon in order to hold people hostage. And that's you know, that's kind of I mean, we don't uh, even have to go to where the convention unconventional weapon route. We've already crossed a threshold that we cannot allow to stand. The international environment cannot allow the establishment of a precedent, re-establishment of a precedent that through force of arms you can simply invade a neighboring country and absorb it into your own. How I mean, many how many even, territorial conflicts a... will that unlock on the planet Earth? I know. And that's not even a sort of like, let's not go back to the, you know, let's let, let's not go back to the old days. Countries didn't swallow other countries in this way in, you know, I mean, they had wars over disputed territories all the time for a thousand years in Europe. But it wasn't like the idea was we are subsuming, you know, England was going to war with France to subsume France or France to subsume Britain take away its right. national identity it was just we're going there to take over stuff to you know to get booty and to and to eat up your resources and rape your women and all of that and then and then leave a couple of garrisons and then we'll go home <laughs> like th th this is a modern thing the idea that you sort of go to obliterate another country's national identity i mean that that's sort of that's early a, that's modern a, it's hitlerite well, it's Hitler, right? And then, of course, and we saw it in 1990. That was what that was what you know Saddam did in Kuwait. He said, "Well, this is our 27th province, and here we have this." Well, Ukraine's not a real country, and it's actually the it's the the seat of historical Russia, and so we get to eat it up uh, if we want to. Uh, let me let me pull back and talk to you about our uh, two remaining advertisers. Uh, look, uh, Noah, buttery sheets, right? What what do you think of when I say buttery sheets? You know what I think of. I'm thinking of Bolin Branch. Uh, I was thinking Kerry Gold because <laughs> you can carve that thing into sheets and it's delicious. All right. Anyway, so buttery sheets, breathable sheets, impossibly soft to start, and they get softer with every wash. It's thread quality, not thread count. Don't be fooled by the thread count mania. The issue here is not thread count. It's wet. it's how good the threads are. And these are the 100% best organic cotton threads on earth. Uh, so uh, over 10,000 stellar reviews. Uh, you'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets and nine neutral colors and all sizes from Twin Up to California King. 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses, are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowling Ranch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowlingBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code COMMENTARY. And let me talk to you about fast-growing trees. Noah, as we've heard this week, got... Uh, two Meyer lemon trees uh, from fastgrowingtrees.com uh, with, and he is very happy with them. And I think we can all agree that, um, you know, even I don't have a guard, you know, don't have a lawn, don't have a garden, all this, like the idea of having to schlep to some garden store and then take it this dirty pot with, you know, filled with, potash and soil and put it in your car and get it all dirty to get a tree home that just does not sound very pleasant so fast growing trees curate thousands of plants so you can find the perfect fit for your specific location climate and needs you don't have to drive around to those nurseries it makes it easy to order online your plants are shipped to your door in one or two days whether you're looking to add some privacy, shade, or natural beauty to your yard, fastgrowingtrees.com has in-house experts ready to help you make the right selection with growing and care advice 24-7. 
Plus, with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, and you'll get 15% off your entire order now through October 15th. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. That's fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. So we 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 got to go. Do we have anything else that we want to bring up? Uh do we want to bring up the hilarious effort to say that uh, uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, maiden act as a, a congressman in 2013, which was to oppose uh, Hurricane Sandy aid, because as he said at the time, some of this aid is stretching out 10 years and doesn't seem to be an immediate uh, peace uh, uh, effort to help rebuild, but is some kind of, you know, uh, boondoggle <clears throat> and now he is uh, as the governor of florida looking for fema assistance uh which is uh not only his writ and right but the right and writ of for the people of florida under the under the terms of fema um anybody this, have anything to yeah this was this was the scandal that we were talking about with chris christie and it wasn't the storm response per se the hug per se um, that was the meat of the accusation against him. It was that he had accepted and lobbied, indeed, for this congressional disbursement. And it is a congressional disbursement for um, disaster aid after Sandy and the Republican argument against it, which was a unified Republican argument. And even Paul Ryan was making it um, that it was loaded up with with pork. Um, and, you know, I was just rereading some of this in The Washington Post, trying again, contextualize out of into oblivion the uh, the republican argument which is which is right on its face but lacks proper context so the washington post said well you know there was what there was you know money in there for washington dc because the smithsonian institute suffered roof leaks the kennedy space center needed 15 million dollars because there was some erosion around the kennedy space center and yes, the bill did include money for the Alaska Chinook salmon, the New England ground fish, Mississippi fisheries, the American Samoan fish bottom. But this is a piddling amount of money. Uh, so again, the fact-checking industry devotes itself not to facts, but to arguing you lawyer a lawyerly argument so that you can have something to rebut your annoying grandpa who just happens to know what's actually in this appropriation bill. And you need you need a little bit of context so that you can be well-armed in the fight against them in, in an election year, because this is an election year argument. Um, it's it's a really cheap, disreputable hit, um, but it's what you come to expect. But, you know, look, the hurricane has thrown DeSantis's enemies into a panic. <laughs> you know, they, they cannot... The, 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 um, when they immediately, you know, sort of became cognizant of, 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 the, of the his potential to do well here, that that became the story. Who not sent the us hurricane. the John Cooper tweet? We yeah, were talking so about John, Cooper. John Cooper's, yes, oh, yeah, he's the Florida chair of, of Joe Biden's 2020 campaign. And he, yeah, he had this tweet that was like, oh, you know, now it, the storm is. I, I have it. Please, here. please, I have please. it here. I'm one of the 2.6 million customers in Florida without power today. I'm pissed that Ron DeSantis wasted his time on issues like don't stay gay, CRT, and shipping off Venezuelan refugees instead of fixing the damn power grid. So that's How the line. That is the line. But you have to at least wait 72 hours before you use it. They're so trigger happy that they couldn't even wait for the appropriate amount of time to pass before it would be a resonant argument. It's not even a relevant argument because what is he talking about? He's saying what Ron DeSantis should have done is spent a hundred trillion dollars burying all the power lines in Florida. I mean, is that is that is that the argument that that um, that in a hurricane when people lose power, the immediate thing to do is say the governor didn't harden the state sufficiently when a Category Five hurricane makes landfall. Do you know how many times a Category 5 hurricane has made landfall in the last 100 years in the United States? Four. <laughs> Four times. I mean, and it doesn't. It, I, I don't even want to argue the point. The point is, that's a bad look. It's a bad look for another reason, um, which is that the worst thing about this hurricane is not that you're without power. 
<laughs> it's that it's that people have died. Right. Yeah. That's I mean, this right. is and but the... this back to the Christie analogy again. It was it was the post Sandy recovery. It was the FEMA aid. All that stuff chipped away at him. We had his you know support within the Republican coalition. It wasn't the the storm itself. And maybe they have the vague recollection of how this went down, but their timeline is all crunched up. Like this took place over a long swath of time. It wasn't in February, March, April of the year, a year later. The storm, I think, was in late October or, or yeah, in late October of 2012. And it wasn't until mid-2013 that the stuff began to bite at Christie. And even then, anyway, not enough to actually undermine his, his re-election, which he won by 30 points. Look, uh, there is one weird aspect to what's going on with DeSantis that I want to mention, which is I, I am... I am made uncomfortable by the fact that his wife is involved in these emergency briefings. Uh, I, she may be his closest advisor. He may love, he may want her to have a national profile that is not appropriate. I don't understand what's going on there. Um, and it is discomforting. And I think it's worth saying that it's discomforting because if this were a Democratic governor and the same thing were going on, I assure you that every Republican in the country would be uh, going absolutely bananas over it. And it is strange and he should stop doing it. Um, that's all I got to say about that. Uh, okay, so uh, we got through this without Christine or, or a guest. I uh, hope it was good. I don't know. Uh, my internet connection was unstable. I was running out of battery. My dog was barking. Difficult, difficult times for us here at the Commentary Magazine podcast. But we will be back. We will endeavor to do well. And we are going to do another Commentary After Dark uh, for Monday. We're going to record it on Sunday night. And, uh, you know, so you never know what's going to happen there. Oh, boy. Who boy will we be? Will we be uh, our ties be loosened? Not that anybody has worn a tie in the last two and a half years. I wore a tie I recently. Have. I wore a tie recently. I think I was at a bar mitzvah. I wore a tie. It was uh, was very um, odd, and it, it does make you think. Like, how did this happen? That we take this piece of you know uh, fabric and we like ring it around our necks and wrap it around twice and pull it through so that it just hangs so at this level of your belt. And it's like, what is this thing? It's very silly. What is it? I won't give the Iranian theocrats for credit for much. They figured out getting rid of the ties is is a good innovation. It's just, I just don't, I just, you know, it's funny. It's just, uh, you know, uh, it's like a trope or something that, that hardened into a, uh, into a reality. It's like, uh, it's like it was like it's like masking for the upper middle class in the 20th century. It's like if you didn't wear a tie, you wore a tie to show who you were and what class you were in. And that's like here in New York, the people who are still masking, who are who are doing so in order to make a point about who they are and where they stand on the political. That's not a fair analogy. But as I said, I was up a lot. I was up in the night dealing with my dog. So anyway, I'm, enough, enough blather. We'll see you on Monday for Abe, Noah, and the absent Christine. I'm John Pothorts. Keep the candle burning.